0: Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. So I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, we're actually in that portion of Scripture, which is Passion Week. It's the final hours of Jesus' life. And as we journey through this particular portion of Scripture, we're doing what we couldn't do on any given Easter, and that's to take time to dwell in the details of his death and his burial and his resurrection, we sang about that wonderful cross. To us, it's wonderful, but to Jesus, it was anything but. To us, it's salvation. To Jesus, it was separation from his Father. To us, it brings eternal life. To Jesus, it was excruciating. And so we draw attention, a two-part study on the tree that Jesus was going to give his life a ransom for you, for me. What looked like the enemy's victory was actually the defeat of sin and death. What looked like the enemy had won, was actually the enemy in defeat. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This, this is our victory story. But let's not miss what it cost Jesus to purchase our lives back from that sin and the penalty of it, which is death. Would you join me and we'll pray. Father, we as your children stop and acknowledge the glory of our salvation that came through the cross of humiliation. Lord, we thank you that you went to that cross, counting it not robbery, but that it was victorious, that that cross would be the method whereby sin would be defeated and death would be taken care of. And so, Lord, we give you this time and ask that your word would be alive to us, that it would speak to us, and that we would learn, Lord, what it cost to purchase us back to you, God. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus has been to trial six times. Not once was he actually found guilty, but he was pronounced guilty even though he was not guilty. Very important piece of information for the Passion Week message. Jesus was not guilty of sin. He had not done anything to warrant death. In fact, he was pronounced innocent and given a death sentence not for himself, but for you. That's why Jesus was pronounced guilty. Interesting that in this context, because this is a very Jewish context in that sense, the Sanhedrin that had just tried Jesus, along with Annas and Caiaphas, knew full well what Deuteronomy 21 declared. And it forms the backdrop of what is about to happen. And there in verse 22 it begins this way, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and therein lies the problem for what is about to follow in the life of Jesus, Jesus had not committed a sin that was deserving of death, but their assumption was he had. They had pronounced him guilty. So from their perspective, Jesus deserved to die. They found him guilty of blasphemy from their particular position, which was patently false. And he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. There's the tree. Jesus hung On a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. From their perspective, Jesus is suffering the penalty of someone who's guilty and is bearing the curse. That is what they believed. That is why this whole scene is so painful. Because the charges were trumped up. They were not true. Jesus had been lied about. He was actually innocent. And therefore a perfect picture of what we find in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, there in verses 19 to 21, a story familiar to most of you. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. Hmm. Jesus was sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. Jesus knew he was going to see his father. There was no doubt of that. And in fact, Jesus will say that according to John's gospel. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But Joseph understood seeing ahead. But as for you, you meant it for evil against me. Joseph's brothers intended to sell him into slavery. That's what they intended. That's what they did. They even faked the whole death thing. They took the multicolored coat and smeared animals' blood on it to take it back to their father Jacob and say, look, he was torn apart. He was ripped to shreds. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive and now therefore do not be afraid For I will provide for you and for your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In that sense, Joseph and Jesus bore a very similar message falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, falsely punished, and yet both of them said, It's okay. God's going to use it for good. Your good, my good, our good. Oh, the wonder of the cross, church. Oh, the wonder, the marvel of the cross. Now, Luke 23, verse 26, as we continue our story. And now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man Simon uh, Cyrenian, who was coming from the country and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, breasts which never nursed. Then they will say and begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? And there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, Golgotha, Kranios, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, it begins the crucifixion of the Lord. Luke is very, very, very concise in his account. And of course, as I've shared with you, the rest of the Gospels need to be considered when you look at the totality of the story so far as the Bible speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus. Because not every detail is contained here in Luke, but there are significant details here that we draw attention to. We don't see the crown of thorns. We don't see the rod. We don't see the scepter. We've seen the robe. We've seen the beating. And now Jesus, it simply says about him, there they crucified him. Jesus nailed to the tree The Jews believing that in fact he was suffering because of his sin and cursed. But was that the case? The first thing that we see is we get a glimpse of this foreign conscript, Simon the Cyrenian. You see, the truth of the matter was during that day and time, a condemned man was always forced to carry his own cross, it was part of the penalty. And that cross normally would just be the cross bar. In fact, the Romans were so good and so brutal that they reused the crosses and the cross bars. And so there were two pieces, the upright piece that was in the ground and the piece that the person was normally nailed to at least at their hands. And so here Jesus is carrying the cross, likely not the whole thing, as we often see portrayed in movies, but likely just the cross member. And so here is Jesus, and he begins to suffer the consequences of what has happened to him. And this is where it's so important that we remember that Jesus was fully God and yet still fully man. Jesus bore an unbelievable amount of damage to his body from the beating in the courtyard of Pilate. Enough that very often, according to Pliny the Younger, Josephus, many first century church historians, that often the criminals never made it to the cross. They died from the beating. It was so severe that they didn't need to be crucified. Jesus being fully God and yet fully man was bearing a cross when he was nearly already dead. As he's stumbling through the streets, even these callous Roman guards couldn't stand it any longer. And they look over at this man, Simon, and they say, Hey, you, come over here carry his cross. And I would imagine somewhat unwillingly at first, Simon's like, why me? He's the criminal. I don't want to be confused. Whatever he's done, I don't want to be identified with it. What will people say? They think that I'm a criminal. You can imagine what was going through his mind at that time. But I think somewhere along that way, somewhere along the journey, somewhere along the Via Dolorosa, Simon's heart began to change. One has to wonder, and we certainly can see, according to the book of Acts, that it might possibly be this man in Acts 13, the ones who laid hands on Saul and Barnabas It would be very likely that the same Simon not only gives his life to Jesus, but is used of the Lord in a mighty way. But in any case, the Romans pressed him into service. The one that should have carried it was another Simon. might have been really good for Simon Peter to carry Jesus' cross. It's just another picture of God's grace. First, God loves you. God loves me. And everything He does, everything He does, is motivated out of that love, including what He does not do, what He does not allow. You see, Peter could have been pressed into service. He was somewhere nearby. He'd been hanging around. But Jesus even gave him a measure of grace in that moment, allowing him to move on. The next thing that we see is this crying crowd that Luke tells us about. There's a great company of people there in verse 27 of women. Which wailed and lamented, they mourned over Jesus. I want to draw your attention to something. Not once, not ever, in the entire New Testament do we find a woman coming against Jesus. It doesn't ever happen, it's not recorded. Now, it's not to say that all women were for Jesus and all men against, but it is to say that the portraits that we have of women in the New Testament were oftentimes more spiritual than the men. More caring, more concerned. We have Elizabeth and Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene. The widow at Nain, the woman who was bent over and couldn't stand. We have all these women. And somehow, throughout church history, we've come away with maybe an understanding that I believe is not only wrong but not taught in Scripture. That somehow, Christianity is patently misogynist. That is not. True. The Bible teaches plainly the full equality of women. That women are just as valuable and just as gifted as men. And while there are differences between the two genders which are pretty clear, nowhere does the Bible denigrate women, demean women. It is also not xenophobic. There's not a single Anglo-European white person in the New Testament. Can I just tell you that? There are African-Americans, if you want to look at it that way. There are Africans. Matter of fact, Simon the Cyrenian was from Niger, North Africa, But there's no blonde haired, blue eyed people in the biblical narrative. So we need to be really careful. I think one of the things that has stained the church, especially here in America, is the overattention to Anglo European white Christians. That's not to be denigrating anyone, that's simply to say, be careful that you know what the Bible actually says, as opposed to what you would like it to say. In him, every race, every creed, every group of people on earth is made one in Christ. Amen? Male, female, designations, all of those things which we have somehow worked into the liturgy of the church, the way the church functions and works, I think sometimes we just simply need to go back and look at what the Bible says about these things. And the Bible is actually quite clear. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the answer is Him. The one true king. Amen? So Jesus next speaks of a coming calamity. He says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. In essence, weep for yourselves, for your children. And he gives a prophecy which has a twofold fulfillment. One that would come true in their day and time, and that would be the war, the oppression, and ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem that would come in AD 70, about 37 years later. As Titus Flavius would commonly siege Jerusalem and pretty much finish off the Jewish people and start what we call the diaspora, the dispersion. The Jewish people kicked out of the land. They would not return until 1948 in mass. So weep for yourselves, Jesus says. Be better if you didn't have children. It's going to be so bad. But he says something that we need to take note of. And this is the reason we know it is twofold. For if they do these things in the greenwood... For those of you that are familiar with wood, one of the things that causes wood to harden is when it is dried out. When it's green, it's considerably softer. And so Jesus alludes to if it is difficult at the beginning of the age of grace, the time when hearts are soft, it will be more difficult. When hearts get hard, your Bible declares that in the last days men will become lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, ultimately denying God. I believe the age of grace is winding down. I believe the end is getting closer than the beginning. And I believe that we are in that time when the wood has become hardened. People's hearts are hardened towards the grace of God. The end of the age of grace. I would encourage you. Jesus is basically alluding to a time that is yet future, the tribulation, when things would get really difficult. When Jerusalem was sacked, when Titus destroyed it, when the temple was destroyed, because that's when the temple disappeared, the one that is still not there today disappeared in AD 70. The stones of the Temple Mount were pushed and are deposited at the base of the wall. You can see them to this day, the street on which Jesus and the disciples walked has been excavated. It's there today, covered with stones. Jesus was making an allusion to a time that is still yet future, known as the tribulation. The record of which, and those things which will happen in the future, or a vast majority of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 19. You can go to our website, ccsouthbay.org, forward slash sermons. You can listen for, oh, about 20 hours or so on all that happens during that time. But what happens during that time is the rise of the Antichrist. The first three and a half years of his reign will be a time of peace relative to the world. He'll actually make a peace treaty with Israel. He will not only allow but encourage the rebuilding of the temple. Why is that important? Because there is no temple on the Temple Mount today. That means the Antichrist has not risen. He is not here. He does not exist in our world today. He has not yet come. He is future. Why is that important? Because that in and of itself explains why people who refuse to get the vaccine on the basis of you're taking the mark of the beast simply do not know what the Bible says about the rise of the Antichrist. He cannot possibly be here yet. And the only reason that you take the mark of the beast is so that you can show your allegiance and worship of him. Because there is no temple on the Temple Mount, the Antichrist has not risen, he is not here, and the vaccine cannot have anything to do with the Antichrist. So please stop passing around that narrative. It's foolish. It's biblically ignorant. Just calling it like it is. Read your Bible. Know what it says. It prevents you from lots of errors. He will come, though. When the wood gets nice and hard, that's still future, church. That's why you want to know Jesus. Because you won't be here when that stuff happens. The story then turns to two friendless convicts And there were also two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. I want to encourage you when you get home to just simply read Isaiah chapter 53 in its entirety. But every one of these details is predicted by the prophet Isaiah in 686 B.C. A copy of that prophecy was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in its entirety dated to 212 B.C. So every single word of the prophet Isaiah We have a copy of it about 250 years before Jesus died on the cross. Very important information that he, Isaiah said, would die with transgressors. You know what those are? People who are in trouble with the law. It's part of the biblical narrative in Luke's gospel, criminals Numbered with, Isaiah 53, 12 says, numbered with, counted with the transgressors. Likely, these two men were companions of Barnabas. Because remember, Barnabas is a focal point of the exchange between Jesus and the criminal that they want released In the midst of all of this, there were the companions of Barnabas who likely were incarcerated at the same time because they were guilty of insurrection, sedition. But these men were truly forsaken because Barnabas goes free. They're going to pay the price for Barnabas. They weren't the leader Barnabas was. You can almost imagine Barnabas getting set free and being someplace out there in the crowd going, sad to be you. But Jesus' heart went out to these two guys. Their own leader abandoned them. But Jesus preached the good news to them. Jesus cared for them even though he's being nailed to a cross. And then came the fearful crime, which occurs at a very unique place. It's a place called Golgotha. It's not more than 150 yards outside of the northern gate, the gate to Damascus. If you look at Jerusalem as kind of a hub, when you leave from the Jaffa gate, guess which city you'll head towards? Jaffa. When you leave from the Damascus Gate, which city do you think you're going to come to next? Major city, Damascus. When you go out the trash gate or the dung gate, where do you think you're going to end up? In the Hinnom Valley. Each of the gates was named for the place that they directed you to when you left the gate. Just outside of the Damascus Gate, a hill It's been excavated now. Unfortunately, there's been a number of excavations around the base of it. There's actually a bus parking lot that's been carved into the base of this particular hill. But it still looks like a skull. Part of the Bridge of the Nose. and One of the eyes, which used to be very prominent back in the 1800s, has since caved in because of erosion. There's actually a settlement on the top of it but it is the only hill that's outside of the northern gate of Jerusalem and located next to that hill is a garden tomb. Jesus is taken to Calvary. Sometimes people ask, well, what's Calvary? Well, Calvary is actually Latin for Golgotha. Calvarii is actually the word It's that place that Jesus gave his life. It's the most important event in human history if you want to look at it that way. If Jesus doesn't die, Jesus can't be raised. If Jesus isn't raised, we will not be raised and we do not have eternal life. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus form the backbone of our salvation. Those things all are what we hang our salvation on. An innocent man died for the guilty on Calvary. There in that place, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Not forgive me for failing you. Forgive them for they know not what they do. The reason that Jesus was crucified in that place is as you leave the Damascus Gate, it's the beginning of the road to Damascus, a very well traveled road that headed north. And everyone leaving from the north of the city would have been forced to walk by where Jesus would hang. It's very public. Unbelievably humiliating. The people there were Greeks, Romans, Jews, likely mostly Jewish people. You have the center of religion, the center of culture, and the center of power or government expressed in those people that were watching. In other words, the whole world was watching to see what would happen with Jesus. And there he was, nailed to a cross. The horror of all of this. They crucified him. Totally innocent. I was the guilty one. My preferred way of looking at the cross is to just simply personalize it. I should have been put to death that day. We get all caught up and oh, the Jewish people did it or the Roman people did it or it was the Greeks because they didn't intervene. They were so wise. It wasn't the Stoics. It was me. It was Jeff Gill. I crucified Jesus. I'd be happy to take the blame for crucifying Jesus. It was me, because I sinned and fell short of the glory of God. That's the truth. If there hadn't been anyone else on earth, Jesus would have had to go to the cross for me. And I encourage you to look at it exactly the same way. Jesus died because of you. When you read Isaiah 53, you're going to find something interesting. All we like sheep have gone astray. He laid upon him the iniquity of us all. But it would only be many that would come. Not everyone receives the gift of grace. Not everyone wants it. That's a decision you have to make. But he died for you. He died for the all we, like sheep who have gone astray. Your iniquity was laid on him. The question is, have you received his grace? Have you believed in him because he loved you to the uttermost? We were singing this morning, I just, man, my heart was just rent. It's like, Lord, you did that for me? You allowed yourself to go through that for me? Back in 1986, the Journal of American Medical Association actually did a report on what was known at the time about Roman crucifixion. You can read it for yourself, it's available online. But after the scourging, one would wonder if Jesus would have actually survived that. He did, because the Bible says he did. The lacerations he received, sometimes bones were exposed, rib cages laid open. I think it helps us to understand what Christ went through for us when you think about exactly what happened. And while I do not wish to belabor it this morning, I think it is important for us to realize this was not some sanitary, you know, what we would call today, you know, some form of capital punishment. You know, we read sometimes in the news that somebody's objecting to a lethal injection because they got, you know, maybe the mix of phenobarbital and some of the other chemical agents that are used to essentially put someone to sleep and then stop their heart. Oh, I wish that that's all that happened to Jesus. He wasn't put to sleep. They didn't just simply stop his heart. They beat him mercilessly to death. They tried to kill him with as much pain and anguish as possible. The Romans were really good at this. They used it as a way to control societal populations. It was so horrific that the average Roman citizen actually could not suffer crucifixion. It was reserved for only those guilty of sedition. If you were in the Roman military, you might possibly be crucified. Even then, normally not. It was for for the very worst of criminals, the most vile. Something that's often missed, the Catholic Church actually continued crucifixion all all the way until the 1800s. Man is very, very good at vile things. We're good at sinning. But we're terrible at saving. Jesus is the Savior. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And He did it to the uttermost on the cross. That crossbar almost assuredly weighed 75 to 120, 50 pounds. Those Roman nails that were used, you know, sometimes we look at it and it's so sanitized in movies that, you know, we see this as almost a procedure that you might see happening today. It was so heinous that it was abandoned by the Carthaginians and the Medes who actually perfected it because it was just too gruesome. A person nailed to the cross sometimes would languish at least for hours, and sometimes days. And it all depended inversely on how badly they were beaten. Why am I sharing this with you? Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. The medical things that happened to Jesus... A simple understanding of anatomy. He was nailed to the cross, and you all know this, really in two specific places that happened to be on the right and the left of his wrists, his palms. The wrist was considered from the elbow to the tips of your finger during that day and time. The number of nerves that exist. For those of you that ever had carpal. Tunnel syndrome, you know how painful that is. Imagine a six or seven inch iron spike driven through your wrist, through the perineal nerve. And then, when driven through your feet as they're nailed together, and then imagine that you're trying to actually get a breath. And so to make it more painful, they bend your knees and nail your feet to the cross so that your knees are bent. And the only way you can breathe is to try and straighten up so you can catch a breath. Jesus died for you. And he didn't just die some ordinary heart attack. His outstretched hands, his limbs racked with pain, asphyxia setting in. And yet the Bible says he gave up the ghost. He literally surrendered. My personal belief is he could have lasted for days. But he willingly gave his life a ransom for many. Exactly as Isaiah said. The chastisement for our peace was placed upon him. He was bruised. He was crushed. For my iniquities. That's why he died. My sin. The weight of my sin. Was so heavy. That my sin killed Jesus. I encourage you to look at it that way. Your sin killed Jesus. That's what he actually died from. The weight of your sin. Because he yielded up his spirit. He physically died because he bore the wrath of God on his body for my sin. Church, don't ever get to the place where you can look at the cross and not see it for what it is. Jesus went to that cross because of you and me. Every person on this earth. When we use the term excruciating, we are actually expressing a biblical term. It literally means out of the cross. So when you say you were in excruciating pain, you're actually identifying with the cross of Christ. Excruciatus. It means to be so painful as to mimic the cross. Church. The only reason that God the Father didn't stomp flat the hills of Judea and send legions of angels to wipe out all of mankind at the sight of what was done to his son is he loves you. He loves you. That's why he didn't do those things. That's why he still labors with us while we're still sinning. That's why he still pours out his grace on us As his kids, who like Peter, fail him. It's the reason that Colossians chapter 1 says what it says, which echoes, by the way, exactly the prophet Isaiah. Verse 19 of Colossians 1, for it pleased the father... that in him, that would be Jesus, all the fullness should dwell bodily. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated And enemies in your mind by the wicked works. Now yet he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. How powerful is the cross of Christ, the tree that was supposed to be a curse became a tree of life to all who believe. Hallelujah. If you haven't received that gift of grace yet today, if you're watching online, if you're here this morning and you haven't cried out to the magnificent Savior who gave his life on that tree for you, You need to do that. There's no other name. There's no other way. There's no competing truth. The name of Jesus is the only name that can save because he paid the price for your sin. And if you ask him, he'll forgive your sin. And he'll cleanse your life and set you free from the bondage of it. That's why he went to the cross. He didn't go for his own sin. He went for your sin. And mine. Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. And if you're here or you're watching and you want to receive Christ right now. There's no mystery in the Bible about how that happens. The Bible actually simplifies it to this extent. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how simple the gospel actually is. It doesn't mean it's cheap and it doesn't mean that it won't change your life. It will change your life. Because you're going to have to give up what you were and become what you're supposed to be. But if you'll ask, he'll say. Father, we thank you. And Lord, I would pray right now if there's anyone here that they would simply invite you, Jesus, into their life to forgive their sin, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness, to put a new heart by the Holy Spirit in them, to take away the shame and the guilt, and impart that new life salvation by believing in you, Jesus, what you did on the cross. And for we who already know you, Lord, we're so grateful, God. We're so undeserving, God. But we are so thankful, Lord, for what you did for us on that cross, on that tree, what should have been the curse and the stain of our lives, you removed and made glory. As you paid the sacrifice that we could not pay, you took care of the debt that we owed. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we praise you and we love you and we exalt you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope you were encouraged by today's message.